all of you, I'm so glad that you're here today. And if you would, please take out your Bibles now and turn in them to the book of First Thessalonians and chapter number 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you can turn in that Bible to page 160 in the back part, and you will find yourself at 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. We've been studying the book of 1 Thessalonians together, and today we have come to chapter number 5. The big one is coming. Even if you don't live in California, you are aware that for decades, scientists have been saying that the big one is coming in California. By that they mean an earthquake of devastating magnitude. And the most historical devastating magnitude type of earthquake that came to California came in 1906, so a little more than 100 years ago in San Francisco, created incredible devastation and fire at that time. And teams of geologists and seismologists and geophysicists with the U.S. Geological Survey and the California Geological Survey and the Southern California Earthquake Center have now said this. They have said there is a 99% chance in the next 30 years of having an earthquake at a 6.7 on the scale type of quake in California. That would be very much like the earthquake at at North Ridge that happened. 99% we're going to have an earthquake like that and perhaps greater within 30 years. 67% that it would happen in the Los Angeles area, 63% that it would happen in the San Francisco area. What would happen if you had an earthquake like they had at the magnitude in, in 1906 in San Francisco? Well, National Geographic tells us that if a similar one were to happen today, 40% of all of the buildings in San Francisco would be destroyed. We have a split-screen shot we want to give you of the 1906 damage and a shot today from the exact same spot. And geophysicist Mary Lou Zoback of the USGS has said this, if such a similar earthquake happened today, there would be in the San Francisco area up to one-half million people who would be homeless. And in the words of USGS geologist David Schwartz, he says, we are sitting on a tectonic time bomb in California. And part of the problem that we have today about this is that people have been lulled into a false sense of security because most weeks, most months, most years are relatively quiet. But what is interesting is this, that 80% of the housing in San Francisco was built prior to earthquake-proof codes. And so some of you have lived in California, and you know the way this works. Most Californians just choose to look the other way to go about their business. And it's almost like if we don't really think about it, maybe it won't really happen. But I want you to know this morning there is another big one coming. And it is a bigger big one. In fact, it will make the devastating San Francisco earthquake of 1906 look like a walk in the park or a picnic in July. And what is coming, the next big one that is coming, the great big one, is the day of the Lord, which is what Paul begins to address in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 
The day of the Lord is coming, and it is an era of doom and devastation and destruction and desolation. It is very ominous. It is virtually blood-curdling. And if you've ever seen scary, this is the ultimate scary. And the reality is, men and women, that many people in our culture today are not really interested in what the Bible has to say. They want to ignore what the Bible says. They want to go about their business. And they would like to think this, surely something like that couldn't happen to our world. But the Bible teaches that it will come. The Bible teaches that there is sudden destruction ahead. Look with me at chapter 5, and I would like to read verses 1 to 11. If you have your Bible open to that passage, I want to encourage you to follow along as I read what Paul writes to the believers and to us. Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober." For those who sleep do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, Encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. Now the message we have given, uh, the title we've given to the message today is The Future Foretold, Divine Judgment Ahead. Now this is not going to be one of those light-hearted mornings. In, in, in reality, this passage of Scripture gives to us a heavy dose of reality. And our plan for the day is to look at things in three segments. Number one, we're going to look at the coming of the day of the Lord in verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to look at unbelievers and the day of the Lord in verse 3. And then we're going to look at believers and the day of the Lord in verses 4 to 11. So we're going to look at the coming of the day. It is coming. We're going to look at unbelievers and the day and then we're going to look at believers and the day of the Lord. So let's begin by looking at the coming of the day of the Lord. And he mentions that in verse 2. The day of the Lord will come. Now when we talk about the day of the Lord, we need to realize that it's not a day. You know, the word day in the original, and in fact the word day in English, has several different meanings to it. The word day can mean a 24-hour period. If if you said to me, I would like to go out to lunch with you this week, and I said to you, which day? I'm referring to some 24-hour period. The word day can also refer to daylight. Say you were traveling and coming to my home, and you said, well, I'm going to be at your home at, at 8. And I might say, 8 in the day? 
Is it going to be in the daylight or in the evening, in the dark? And then day could also mean an indefinite period. If I said, in the day of my youth, I could play basketball for four hours and I would never get sore. That's true, but I'm not talking about a day. I'm talking about an era when I was young and a little more on the frisky side. So when we talk about the day of the Lord, we're not talking about a day. When the Bible talks about the day of the Lord, it's talking about a brief era of a few years during which God is going to pour out his wrath in judgment on an unbelieving world. He is going to pour out his wrath on those who turn their backs on the living God, those who give their cold shoulder to the Lord Jesus, those who have picked the broad highway that leads to destruction. Sometimes we forget that the Bible talks about this. In Isaiah 61.3, it's described as the day of the vengeance of our God. And in Revelation chapter 6, in a very interesting picture, it's called the day of the wrath of the Lamb. Lambs are very gentle, and, and lambs are used for sacrifice, but this is the day of the wrath of the Lamb. Now, I want you to notice what he has to say about the coming of the day. In verse 1, he says, Now, as to the times and epochs. If you've been with us in our study, you know that in the, in the last number of verses of the previous chapter, he talked about the, the great event of the great snatch. Now he's begin, beginning to shift gears a little bit when he says, Now as to. It's a little signal that there's a gear shift going on. If you look in chapter 4 and verse 9, begins with the same gear shift. He's been talking about um, sexual purity. And then in verse 9, he goes, Now as to the love of the brethren. There's a, there's a gear shift. And we're seeing a gear shift here in chapter 5 and verse 1. He's shifting to a new aspect of future events. And he says, As to the time and epics, brethren, Everyone always wonders about the dates of future events in prophecy. Some always wonder about that. But he says to them, As to the time and epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well. In other words, I told you very clearly, told you very clearly that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. How does a thief come? A thief comes unannounced. It, it comes when you're not anticipating that a thief would come. And by the way, this is very vividly communicated here in the verse because it's not just the day of the Lord will come. It's, it's literally present tense. The day of the Lord is coming. It's very vivid. It's very real. But it'll come like a thief in the night. Can you imagine if there was a burglar who wanted to strike your house? And he sent you an email or a text message that said, I will be there Thursday night at 2 a.m. Please set out all of your valuables in one central location and then stay asleep while I come. Doesn't work that way, does it? You're not going to get that kind of a message because he wants to come unannounced and he wants to come in a way and a time that you would not anticipate his arrival. I want to tell you a story that Sam Gordon relates about a man down in Dallas, Texas. 
And he jumped into a Sam's Club store one afternoon because he was very eager about getting a new piece of gadgetry. And in his keenness, his excitement to pick that up, he suffered a senior moment and he left his car keys in the ignition. Ten minutes later, when he came out of the store, the car was gone, stolen. So he contacted, contacted the police, they came, and then they drove him home. He talked about it all that evening, but the next morning when he woke up and he opened the curtains to his house, he couldn't believe his eyes. His pride and joy Cadillac was back, sitting outside, gleamingly immaculate, valeted inside and out. And when he opened the door, he found a note which said this, Dear Sir, I am sorry for taking your car. It was a dire emergency. Please accept my apology. I have filled your tank with gas, and you will find, enclosed with this note, two complimentary tickets to tonight's Dallas Cowboys football game. He couldn't believe this. This is unbelievable. He was overwhelmed with the kindness and thoughtfulness of this person who had temporarily borrowed his Cadillac. And of course, that evening, he and his wife went to the Dallas Cowboys football game. Great game. They had a great time. However, upon returning home, when they walked in through their front door, they quickly realized that the place had been fully ransacked. All of their stuff was gone. They had been completely cleaned out. You see, the thief also had their house key. That's the way thieves operate. They come unannounced and in ways that you don't anticipate. And what the Bible says is that the day of the Lord is coming like that. Well, what is that going to mean for unbelievers? Well, that leads us to verse 3 where we talk about unbelievers and the day of the Lord. Notice what it says there. While they are saying. Who would be the they? The, the they here is the unbelieving world. Those people who are without a relationship with the person of Christ. Those people who resist and reject the Lord Jesus. Those people who have turned their backs on the living God. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with a child, and they will not escape. Turn one page to the right in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and you notice this is described in a little more detail here in verse 7. It says, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Men and women, that is reality. That is reality. While they're saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with a child. With, with labor, you never know when it's going to start. You might be asleep and jolted out of your sleep, or you might be driving down the road and suddenly they will begin to hit. Thus it will be for those who do not know Jesus Christ. 
Destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with a child, and they will not escape. Very strongly worded in the original. They will absolutely not escape. Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. I like the New Living Translation there. It says this, This will be a time of greater horror than anything the world has ever seen or will ever see again. Now, this is not the kind of stuff we like to talk about in everyday life, but this is reality, men and women. And I think it's important for us to take a time to look at this a little more carefully because God speaks very plainly about unbelievers and the day of the Lord. And what I want us to do is, rather than me summarizing that, I want us to look at some passages in the Bible about that. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 13. If you have your fingers limbered up and you're ready to do a little bit of Bible study, we're going to do that today. Paul thought this was important enough to emphasize to the Thessalonians, and certainly it's important for us to, to see it also. But notice Isaiah 13, verses 9 to 11 says this, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. The moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and will abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. Rough, tough will be the day of the Lord. I want you to turn to another passage which is found in Zephaniah. If you're not sure how to find Zephaniah, go to the Gospel of Matthew and back up four books into the Old Testament and you will be at Zephaniah. And I want to read from Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. We're trying to get a dose of reality of what is ahead for unbelievers in the day of the Lord. Verse 14, Zephaniah 1. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. I want to look at a few more passages. Go with me to the book of the Revelation, the very last book of the Bible. And there's a extensive portion of this book that talks about the day of the Lord. Look at chapter 6 and verses 7 and 8. And I, I want you to know something. When I read through this stuff, it's hard for my brain to be able to even imagine what this is going to be like. 
chapter 6 and verse 7. It says, The Lamb broke the fourth seal, and I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. And authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. Now that's an amazing statement, men and women. In one fell swoop in the day of the Lord, one quarter of the world's population dies. You know, we get upset when we hear about 500 people, 1,000 people being injured in some event. One quarter of the world's population. Right now, the world's population is 6.7 billion with a B. One quarter of that is 1.7 billion people. Men and women, that's 1,700 million people who in one short event are taken from the planet. Look at uh, verse 12 of chapter 6. I looked and he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake, literally shakings and convulsions. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon was made like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when they're shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. I don't know what's going on here. Is this some sort of nuclear event or is this some cosmic event? And apparently you have some sort of meteors, some sort of fireballs that are coming down to the earth. And notice verse 15 says, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, it's interesting, they call out to nature, but they don't call out to God. Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? You know, someone who doesn't know a personal God facing death is a very unsettling thing, but I want to tell you something, it's nothing compared to coming face to face with a holy and righteous God. We see more reality in chapter 8 of the Revelation, verse 7. There's a trumpet that sounds, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. I don't know what this means. What is this? They were thrown down to earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. And a second angel sounded in verse 8, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. What is that? And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures were in, which were in the sea and had life died. So a third of aquatic life is wiped out. And, and um, it goes on to say that a third of the ships were destroyed, and, and a third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, some giant fireball. And it fell on a third of the rivers and of the springs of waters, and the name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third of the fresh waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Somehow it became poisonous, fresh waters contaminated. 
And then it's interesting to see what happens in verse 13. And I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice. You have an eagle speaking, and some people go, I don't think that could ever happen. You know, some animal. Well, it had happened. It's happened. In, in Numbers 22, you remember that Balaam's donkey was enabled by God to actually speak. And here you have an eagle who is speaking, saying, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels were about to sound. No wonder it says in Luke 21, verse 26, about this time that men will be fainting from fear and the expectation of things coming upon the world. This is the ultimate big one coming. Look at chapter 9. And verse 18, chapter 9 and verse 18, a third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by fire and smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. Another one-third of the world goes down for the count. And then it's interesting to see, it says in verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works of their hands so as to not worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and so forth, they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their sexual immorality, nor of their thefts. Their hearts, it's amazing to me, but their hearts are as hard as granite. We see more reality in chapter 16 of the Revelation. I mean, this goes on and on. We're just touching on some of the highlights. Chapter 16 and verse 8, a fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with fierce heat. I mean, some kind of the, the ultimate heat stroke is this searing heat is poured out on the planet. And they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. Look at verse 11. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Look at verse 18 in the same chapter. There were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. There was a great earthquake. Such has not been seen since man came upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. And the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell down. And every island fled away. And the mountains were not found. That is the ultimate big one when it comes to earthquakes. And I find it very fascinating. Verse 21 says, And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. Now, is that not an understatement? You know, I remember in the early 80s, I don't remember exactly what year it was, when Wildwood was at our other facility at 905 East Rock Creek Road. There was a very memorable Sunday evening because that Sunday evening was the, the second most severe hailstorm in Norman over the last 100 years. We were right in the middle of the service when it hit. And I remember it knocked out all the power and the hail blew out a lot of our windows on the ground, and we had these skylights that were up uh, in the ceiling of the worship. How many people were here? Okay, I see about two hands, all right? So 
Yeah, there you go. I see a few more back there. That was quite a night. In fact, I was talking to uh, Jerry Jimerson uh, after the first service, and he said he was at Trinity Baptist, and they were in a worship center about like this where they had these big uh, stained glass windows that went up and down the side, and those windows got completely blown out. But not only that, he told me the hail was coming in so much in a sideways manner that he said even after the windows were knocked out, they blew all the way across the worship center and bounced off the far wall. I mean, I tell you, that was a memorable hailstorm. But nothing, nothing like this. Hailstorms about 100 pounds. Literally, it says, hailstones that are a talent's weight, talent weighed between 120 and 130 pounds. Can you imagine hail 120 pounds each? and the kind of damage that could do, not only to people, but to the planet. And then I want you to see the final dose of reality we want to look at is found in chapter 19, where we have really the return of Christ. And uh, we're not going to read all the way through verses 11 to 21. I would encourage you to read through the whole section, but I just want you to notice this. This so impresses me. Verse 11 says, John says, I saw heaven opened. In chapter 4, it says a door in heaven was opened, and John was called up into heaven to get these prophetic visions of the future. But just a door in heaven is open. Here it says, and heaven was opened. It's like all of heaven is opened up, that parallel world to our world. The whole curtain is drawn back. And here we have Jesus Christ on a white horse, the one who's called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. It says in verse 12, his eyes are a flame of fire. His eyes are blazing fire. The look of divine wrath will see right through you. And it goes on to say in verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. That is the coming day of the Lord. What I find interesting is even in the midst of all of that, God is still gracious and God is still merciful. Look at chapter 14. A very interesting event happens in verses 6 and 7. Right in the middle of all of this unpacking itself, he says in 14, verse 6, I saw an angel flying in mid-heaven, that is up through the earth's atmosphere, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. God is unpacking all of this judgment on a rebellious world, and yet he sends an angel who flies through the atmosphere, crying out, Fear God, give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him. It's a call to worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. And then another angel followed after that, talking about how God is really going to be judging the world. So even as God is in the middle of this, he's got an angel saying, fear God, repent, worship the God of the universe. So we've looked at the coming of the day. We've looked at unbelievers and 
the day of the Lord. Let's shift over to believers and the day of the Lord. In verses 4 and following back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Notice he says to them, by way of contrast, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. There are just two types of people in the world, men and women. Those who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and those who don't. Those who have a personal relationship with Christ are called sons of light. Those who don't are called sons of darkness. And when we see the person of Christ for who he is and what he did for us, dying on the cross in our place, the Bible teaches that we end up being delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of light. Two types of people. The destinies of both are clear. The destinies of the sons of light, well, verse 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The destiny for the sons of darkness, also in verse 9, but one page over in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, the destiny for those who are the sons of darkness, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Amazing. But our destiny is of sons of light. And really what he wants to say in these verses is we need to live in light of who we are. Notice in verse 6 he says, So then let us not sleep as others do. There is a concept of sleep used in the previous section referring to Christians who have died. This is a different term. It's a term that includes the idea of spiritual indifference, being spiritually tuned out, which is what the world is. So he's really saying, as believers, as sons and daughters of light, let us not be spiritually indifferent or spiritually tuned out. Rather, we need to be alert and sober. Now, I like to have fun with uh, anyone else. I mean, I enjoy having some fun in life, and I'm thankful that God has allowed us to have fun. But life especially for those of you who are younger, it's important to realize life is a whole lot more than fun and games. Life is more than just being focused on yourself. Life is more than being oblivious to coming reality. We live in a world where people are perishing. And one of the reasons why God has you on the planet if you are a child of light is to pass on the truth about Jesus Christ and to live your life to honor Him. Not a time for us to have our head in the sand or to be operating in a business-as-usual manner. Let us not sleep as others do, verse 6, but let us be alert, which is the opposite of being spiritually lethargic, and let us be sober, which certainly means that we shouldn't go around as children of light being intoxicated and on drugs, but it means more than that. It means that we need to be clear thinking. We need to see life for what it really is. And then he goes on, and he says in verse 8, but since we are of the day, let us be sober. How do we really uh, be sober? How are we really being clear thinking? Well, we put on, he says, the breastplate of faith and love. It'd be like saying today, put on the bulletproof vest. Uh, 
Put on the thing that will guard your heart as you live out your life. And we are to put on the breastplate or the vest of faith. I think here he's talking about a vertical dimension, how we relate to God as we live out our life. We're to put on the breastplate of faith. We are to have faith in who God is, faith in his character, faith in his integrity. We're to have faith in his power and his strength, that nothing is impossible for us in Christ. We're to have faith in his promises and faith in his plan, that his grace, no matter what we may be experiencing, will always be sufficient. That's part of what it means to be a child of light, that we put on the breastplate of faith in that vertical dimension of a relationship with God. But not only that, we not only are living a life relating to him, we're, we're relating to one another. And so we put on, to guard our heart, the breastplate of love. And we have defined love many, many times here at Wildwood. It's defined this way. Love is a commitment of my will to your needs and best interest, regardless of the cost. And that is the way we are to live our life, with the breastplate of faith and the breastplate of love. And then, he says, you are to put on the helmet of salvation. Notice what it says there. The helmet of the hope of salvation in verse 8. A helmet protects you from fatal blows. And we need to put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. That the confidence that we have as we live out our life is in the sufficiency of the work of Jesus Christ for us. For notice it says in verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for Uh, obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. In other words, the future hope that we have of our destiny falls solely on the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm counting on. Not things that I do, but what he did in my place. The cross, men and women, is the dividing line of all of humanity. What have you done with the cross? Put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. God has not destined us for wrath, but obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, verse 11, encourage one another. That's part of what we should be doing, encouraging one another. I want to give you a couple of passages. Jot down Hebrews 3, verse 13 where the author there says, encourage one another day after day that none of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Oh, sin's always trying to sell us a bill of goods. Yeah, go this way. It'll make you happier. And part of what we need to do is encourage one another about that, to say, listen, don't buy into that. Don't buy into all the talk about the more stuff you have, the more sexually involved and adventurous you are. That's the deceitfulness of sin. We need to encourage one another so that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 10.25 says, Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Well, you come together on a regular basis as believers, which is the habit of some people to do. But rather, it says, encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Part of our job as we relate to one another is that we encourage one another. 
And let's just be honest. There's a time in my life and in your life when each one of us can experience being discouraged or, or we may be experiencing anxious times or we may be hurting or we may be drifting in our relationship with the Lord. And the church family is to be a rejuvenation station in the marathon of life. That's why you don't live a lone ranger life as a Christian. You just go off somewhere and do that. We need each other. We need to be encouraging each other. And then he says in verse 11, build up one another. Spur one another on. That's why we team together in relationships at Wildwood. It's part of our shining as light. And sometimes we may be drifting and we need to call one another back in fellowship. I like the way Phillips translates verse 11. He translates it this way. Go on cheering and strengthening one another. And I want you to know, I just confess this, I need you. I need you to cheer me on. There's weeks when I'm like you. I even wonder, why am I doing some of the things I'm doing? I need you. I need you to be cheering me, and we need to be strengthening one another. The big one is coming, men and women. The day of the Lord is coming. And it would be a great mistake to look the other way, just go about our business, and fail to live in light of eternity. Now, as I said, that's a, that's a lot of reality. But it's one dose that we need to have. Now, what's some life response that we can have, having looked at all of this today? And I want to suggest two things by way of life response. Number one would be to lift up, and number two would be to turn to. To lift up and to turn to. What do I mean by lift up? Well, one response I believe that God would have us to do if we know Him personally is to lift up those without Christ. And I don't know about you, but I don't know how you can read through passages like we've just read through and not be thinking about people that you know. People who God brings to your mind. And you're thinking, I don't want that person to go through the day of the Lord. And, and what I want you to consider doing is this. As you lift up those without Christ, I want you this week to identify three people that you know, that you would desire to see delivered from the wrath to come. And what I want you to do is I want you to pray for those three people for the month of July. Wouldn't you want them to be praying for you? Now you can, you can have more than three. But I want you to identify three people that you want to see delivered from the wrath to come and pray for them for the next 30 days. Second life response is to turn to, to turn to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I care about every person that's here. I care about every person that's hearing my voice. And I want to appeal to you because I don't know all of you that well personally to turn to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not too late for anyone to do that. See, we all have the same problem. We all have a sin, a death, and a judgment problem. We all have that. But as it says in 1 Peter 3, Christ died for your sins to bring you to God. He came to this planet to be your rescuer. And my appeal to you would be to turn to the person of the Lord Jesus. 
You see, you're just like me. You did all the sinning, living your life independent of God, making wrong moral choices. And Jesus Christ did all the dying, paying the penalty on the cross for me and for you. And as it says in Acts chapter 3, as a group of people is being appeared, appealed to there, it says, repent so that your sins may be washed away. And knowing you're forgiven is the most wonderful thing in all of the world. And the reality is, men and women, is that, that God has tossed a life preserver to you. And you can ignore it and perish, or you can grab onto that by faith. Let's bow in prayer. And as we bow in prayer, I just simply want to, as a special day today, as we've, we've looked at some serious stuff, but I would like to, to lead people in prayer who've never yet turn to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've never done that, you can make sure of your eternal destiny today. All you need to do is just pray a prayer in the quiet of your own heart to the heart of God, communicating really what's in your heart. It's not the prayer, it's what's in your heart. Would you just come to God and say to God, I, I realize I have a, a sin and a, and a death and a judgment problem. And God, I realize that Christ died for my sins to bring me to you. And I recognize today that Jesus came to be my rescuer. And I admit that I have lived independent of God. I've made some wrong moral choices. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross for all of my sin. And today, by faith, I want to repent so that my sins could be wiped away. By faith, I want to grab onto that life preserver who is the person of Christ and his death for me so that I can know you and know eternal life. God, I would pray that everyone who hears these words can know the joy of what it means to know a Savior. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.